so we are trying to wrap up the book of James, and we're in James chapter 5 this morning, if you have your Bibles. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12 this morning and talk about patience and suffering. You're not going to have patience and suffering. You're not going to have hope in suffering. You're not going to get through a season of suffering without the firm belief that God is sovereign and that he's good in his sovereignty. And so I'll tell you this. Um, we all go through seasons in life, some much more difficult than others. Some have worse goes at it than others do. But there are all seasons of difficulty and despair, trial, struggle, loss, heartache in this life. Uh, without God's present help, it is infinitely more difficult to make it through. Have you ever been to a funeral and you think, how in the world would I have made it through that without knowing that my loved one was in heaven? I'm sure you've been there. We think about how good God is. And even in the bad, Paul testifies that God is still good. And ultimately, we know that his goodness results in us spending an eternity with him because of his son. Anybody who would sacrifice so much to love us on such a level can be nothing but unconditional love. And God is love. And so I want to tell you guys this morning just a story. I didn't have this in my notes or anything, but yesterday we were headed to Tahlequah, Jennifer and myself and the boys, uh, Kendra's, uh, Kendra Hill's sister. Uh, they have a ranch out there with some horses and a pond, and we were going out there to go fishing and just spend some time with their, their kids and their family. And uh, we left, and on the way down 49, uh, we lived in Centerton, and so we were traveling through, ben, or through Rogers and through Springdale and through Fayetteville, and we saw some vehicles that had slid off the road through hydroplaning, and, uh, and that's my assumption, uh, several vehicles, one, one was really bad off into the ditch, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I was trying to be very careful, you know, in the things that I know to do, and maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but when it's hydroplaning, when it's just started raining, the oils from the, the road uh, kind of pick up, and um, you don't put your vehicle on uh, cruise control, uh, you don't speed, obviously, you're careful in traffic, you drive a little differently, okay? When, when conditions in life are tough, we, we adapt to those things, right? And so before we left the house, we do this every time we leave the house to go on any trip, trying to set a standard for my boys to see and also because I believe in the importance of it. But we prayed. We prayed, for a, uh, we prayed to God asking him to bless our time that day, that we would, uh, we would consciously enjoy the day, but also that we would be kept safe on the road. And that prayer includes many things for God's mercy, including, Lord, keep us from accident, keep us from harm, help us to arrive safely. And you probably pray those prayers too. And so we had prayed that prayer, but on the way, we began to see these cars on the side of the road, and it's an alert to us that when others have fallen off track, we need to make extra sure that we're careful as we continue forward. And there's spiritual lessons in this well, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize it, but we got down to a certain point on 49, uh, just a couple of miles before the Bobby Hopper Tunnel. And there's a curve there, and on that curve, there's a median, a concrete median, a barrier uh, between both lanes on both sides. And on the other side, there's a couple of overpass bridges where it's a deep ravine. And um, we lost, I lost control of the vehicle. And um, Sperry had just fallen asleep in the back seat. Declan was about to fall asleep. And they, thank God, I look back on it now, and I think in the middle of this, 
there were so many things. There was no traffic anywhere around us. I was in the left lane, and all of a sudden, we start slipping, and we're moving towards this ravine, ravine before the guardrail, right over, right over. And I, I lifted my hands from the steering wheel for just a second, and Jennifer was screaming and, and crying, and um, I, I said, I have no control. And I did what I, I knew to do. You take your foot off the brake. You, you, I didn't hit the accelerator. I wasn't overcorrecting. And, guys, um, scary moment, right? Um, we're, we're moving towards this. Everything's traveling in slow motion and, and, and just, just a bad, bad thought. And all of a sudden, our vehicle corrects and pulls back, right back into the road. And for 30, 40 minutes, uh, I was very shaky. Uh, Jennifer was over in the passenger seat crying. The boys wondered what was going on because they heard some yelling and uh, screaming and stuff. And, and I think about this, okay? I think I prayed for God's safety before we left, right? And we were kept safe. But I wonder how many times we wake up in the morning and we ask God, God, help this to be a good day. God, bless us. God, protect us. And we get to the end of our day and we're safe. And we go to bed okay. Or we've been kept alive or we've been blessed. And we forget that we even prayed that prayer and we forget to thank God in the end of it. I can tell you for the next 30 or 45 minutes, I'm sitting there in the driver's seat trying to get my stomach back out of my throat. And I'm thanking God for his hand of protection and blessing. Um, in the middle of suffering, which we weren't suffering in that moment, but it was, an, it, was an, it was one of those moments where we could have, right? And we don't look at all the what-ifs in life because that'll lead you down a track you don't want to go on. But when we do go through the season of suffering, is God still good? Had something happened to us? Had we crashed? Had there been an, an incident there or something else? When we walked through that, would it still be the same fact that God is good? Would he still be worthy of thanking through the middle of all of that? And so James is talking about this this morning, and I want you to look. I'm not going to read the first six verses. Let me, I I lied to you. I want to read the first six verses, okay? Hang on. I wasn't planning on it. But here, here's what James is doing, okay? In the book of James, I got a different Bible this morning. I'm not used to this one. Ben, do you have James? <laughs> Would you read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 out loud? You guys, he doesn't have a mic, so just listen. Bible. <laughs> Is anybody that's not a preacher have? <laughs> okay. All right. In James 5, verse 1 through 6. Come now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupt and your garments are uh, moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are rusted, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure to yourselves or together for the last days. Behold, the hire of the uh, uh, laborers who have reaped down your fields, uh, which is of you, kept back by fraud, Crieth, and the cries of them who have 
reaped and are entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the just, and he does not resist you. Okay. You may be wondering what in the world James was saying in, in the midst of he's moving into a passage about suffering or seasons of difficulty in life. And why would he preface that with a warning to the rich? But everything that's in the scripture is contextually there. James wasn't just randomly putting something there about wealth than talking to us about suffering. Um, what the warning there is that Brother Ben just read is this idea that at the heart of pride is often this love of material things. So many people are in love with the world right now. Not, not necessarily the, the struggles and the difficulty of the world, but the stuff in the world, the stuff that we have. Uh, you know, um, People look to, uh, when things are tough, we always joke about, hey, uh, I'm going to go do some uh, uh, shopping. You know, that'll make me feel better. Okay, I had a rough week. Uh, maybe if I go buy uh, some new clothes or a new gun or, or, or something, that it'll make me feel better, right? And it may, you know. But the problem is, is too many people put too much stock in the stuff of this life. And that's where we find our comfort, our peace, our joy, our happiness. And that's really what James is leading into here. Uh, he's not saying that if you're rich, there's something wrong with you, okay? There, there were so many Bible characters in the Old Testament, even the New Testament as well, that were wealthy. And it's not money that is the sin, right? Money is absolutely uh, morally neutral. Money can't do anything good or bad in itself. But it's the lust after, the love of money that sets us on the wrong course. And so the idea here is uh, we tend to, as sinful human beings, turn gold into a god or materialism into a master or even our stuff into some kind of a savior like it can take care of us. And James is warning that all material things pass away. We can't rely too heavily on them for our health, for help in life, or for our peace. And it won't matter how much money you have in the last days, difficulties will still prevail. Uh, as we went through COVID, especially in the early uh, beginnings of this back in March, and you looked and you saw elite people from Hollywood, actors and actresses that were coming down with this sickness, and uh, they were no different for many of us. They, they were all uh, uh, susceptible to the same sickness. No matter how much wealth or fame or money or how big their mansion was, they were still susceptible. Guys, we're all susceptible to the same frailties of life. Just some of us look for help in a different place than others do. And as believers, we look to the Lord and not to more stuff to save us. And so the, uh, the idea here is that the physical and the financial should never take priority over the spiritual and eternal. Not only will the love of money rob our souls of heavenly treasures, but often he's saying to us here, it puffs us up. It causes some folks to, they think that they're of such worth that they can treat others with such little value because of the way uh, wealth and material things do. In Matthew six nineteen, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things of earth are tied to earth, but that which is tied to eternity will have eternal value. And so I believe con contextually here 
that he's shifting into patience while suffering, but he's telling us when we're too attached to the things of this world, we don't have a true place of healing or peace or solace when those things are taken from our lives. When my beauty, when my health is taken from me, what do I have left if that's the only place I found value is through my beauty all these years? And man, I find lots of value in my beauty, y'all. So if it's ever taken away, I'm going to be upset, all right? Uh, my wealth, thankfully I've never had a lot of that, Brother Ben. So, but if that's taken away, where do I find my value? If all I've ever looked to is my children and they're who makes me who I am and they move out of the house and get married and have lives of their own, where's my value? If it's stuff, material things, you know, collections and hobbies, when those things are removed, what's left? What's next? And really and truly, it's don't tie yourself to stuff here that's transitory, that's temporary. Make it eternal. Make it of spiritual worth. Don't store up for yourselves stuff on here, guys. We, we never, ever will pull... I've I never seen this yet. Maybe somebody has where you're pulling the U-Haul trailer behind the hearse, and after you put the casket in there, you're throwing all the stuff of the world in there with them. That doesn't happen, because guess what? That stuff stays there. It doesn't go to heaven with us. What's of true lasting worth is our soul. Um, in verses 7 through 12, just read with me. We're going to look at these verses kind of one by one, but beginning just in verse 7 of James 5, he says, Be patient. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Let's go ahead and read the rest of it. He's saying, like that rain, like that farmer, you also should be patient. Establish or strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. Do not grumble about one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast and who persevered. But you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose or outcome of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation or judgment. James here in the beginning is turning believers towards this idea of suffering. If you don't think these believers in James's day were suffering, uh, you're sorely mistaken. It wouldn't be long afterwards that uh, Emperor Nero would rise to power. I'm not sure right off the top of my head when Nero became emperor, but he hated Christians, persecuted Christians. In Rome, Christians were made sport of. Eventually, the Colosseum would be built with the primary purpose of using Christians in the, in the pens uh, for sport, so that people would come and watch them be massacred and murdered and killed. Christians in this day were not liked by anybody. They were kind of just on their own. Much like in the world today, as it was, uh, history tends to repeat itself. If you take a firm stand for Jesus and you stand as a Christian in this world, you'll often be ridiculed and mocked. Most of us won't be imprisoned for that, though we have seen that happen in the last few months. But it's difficult for us to wonder and think, how could we suffer just for loving Jesus? But look at all of the Bible. Most of it was marked with suffering. It wasn't marked with comfort and ease and joy. Even Jesus himself suffered and set for us a standard there. But what followed was glory. 
And so here, uh, James, when he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord, uh, in this passage particularly, he's not referring to the rapture, that time when uh, those who are dead first will rise up and those who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the twinkling of an eye. But he's encouraging believers to be patient until the Lord comes to intervene in their circumstances. Literally, this could be at any moment, at any time. Whenever you're struggling and whenever you find difficulty in life, and you pray, and God intervenes. He's saying, wait for the Lord to be faithful to hear and answer your prayer. And so we all need that, and hopefully that's a daily prayer of ours. The problem with us is that most of us, most human beings, don't know how to exercise patience very well. I'm in that category, right? I'm an impatient person. And we all know the old joke about when you pray for patience, what happens? And so we very seldom pray for it. But biblical patience does not mean doing nothing. It does not mean sitting on your hands, twiddling your thumbs. It means while we're waiting on God to move, we're still doing something of faithful kingdom value. And so he illustrates this with the farmer. You ever seen a farmer go out and plant his field and just sit in his rocking chair until the harvest comes? No, that doesn't happen. What's the farmer doing in the meantime? He's tending the fields. He's seeing to the rest of the chores that he has to do. He's taking care of the rest of his livestock. He's making sure the predators don't get into his fields. He's checking to see if everything's all right. And he's doing all of those things while he's waiting. Guess what we're doing? We're all waiting to go to heaven. But in the meantime, we've got a lot of work to do, right? We're not lazy farmers. And so uh, in the middle of all of this, we need to remember that the farmer, like the child of God, should keep at it. We're eagerly yearning for Jesus to come back. Man, I I do not know about you, but I would be okay if Jesus returned today. In fact, I would be better than okay because we would be glorified with him. We uh, We would be lifted up with him into his presence. But we're eagerly awaiting and yearning for the Lord to come, but we know in the meantime there are things that are out of our control. The rains. The late and the early rains, the harvest rains. The farmer has no control over those things. How many things in your life do you have no control over, but you must wait for heaven to intervene? Don't quit is the, uh, is the idea. Do not cease your activity during the season of your suffering. It will only prolong it. When you stop, when you quit, man, you're finally beaten. You'll be miserable if you quit what you're supposed to be doing. In other words, if you get saved and you just sit down and do nothing with your Christian life, nothing with the gospel until the day that you die, you'll not be a very joyful Christian. You won't live as a victorious Christian in this life. You'll likely also, in the middle of suffering, lose the lesson that God's trying to teach you. Guys, if we don't learn the lesson, we're going to be unequipped to handle what life throws at us next. Don't you think God sees over the hill, over the horizon, around the curve, and he knows what's coming at you? Don't you think that he already sees that since he is a sovereign God? And yet he's saying, right now, I'm going to put you through this. I'm going to make you to see this. I'm going to grow your faith. I'm going to build you up in some way so that you're ready for that when it comes. And it's so difficult to understand and grasp, but we also don't see from God's perspective. We all want to get to heaven. But we have a whole life here on earth that needs a little bit of heaven brought down to it. What can what can do much good for God? Or I'm sorry, we can do so much good for God as we wait for God to take us home. Don't waste your days. Don't be found idle. Guys, don't wish your days away. 
I've done this so much in my life and wished God would make this happen, would make me graduate high school, would make me graduate college, would make me find a job, would make me do these things. And man, in the meantime, I haven't counted my days as blessings. I've counted them as something that needs to be gotten through or endured so that I can get to the next thing. But life is precious and life is short. Use your days, which are gifts, to impact others' lives. There's so many lost people in this world. Share the good news in a world of bad. Be light in the darkness. Look at verse 10 and 11. James points to the Old Testament prophets and he says, guys, if you want an example of of difficulty and suffering, think about what it would have been like to be a Jeremiah. Think about what it would have been like to be a, a Nehemiah. Think about somebody in the Old Testament that was called specifically of God to go and proclaim the message of God and to warn people who didn't want to hear you. Not a very pleasant message, right? Uh, It's still not pleasant in our world today. When we share the good news of Jesus and we talk to people that there is a real literal heaven and a real literal hell, people begin to say, you know what? I don't believe that. I don't want to listen to that. We've gotten to a world today where even if you can back it up biblically, right, people don't care. It doesn't matter to them. It's not going to change their mind. And, And so it's all emotion and feeling and philosophy that are making people think what they did. Well, the prophets went through this, and he says the prophets of God endured so much unjust, undeserved mistreatment simply for speaking in the Lord's name. What the prophets were sent by God to do was be microphones to the people, to be a, a voice, a mouthpiece. And they were telling people, if you don't repent devastation is going to happen. We're going to be judged as a nation. And you know there were a faithful few that were repenting and turning, but the nation as a whole was continuing to go down a dark path. There are similarities in history, right? The prophets still need to speak out, even if it's an unpopular message. Now the true outcome for these prophets, most of them were cussed and killed by the people. But the truest outcome was not what happened in this life, but what happened in the next We're told here that God blessed them for their faithfulness, even in the middle of their struggle. I can't imagine how many prophets went home at night and said, God, this is not what I signed up for. God, this is unpleasant. People don't like me. When I tell the truth, people hate me. God, I had uh, stones thrown at me today. God, I had people threatening me today. Is this really what you want from my life? And God was saying, be faithful Be patient in the meantime. A greater reward is coming. And so uh, he uses the next example of a man named Job. Nobody wants the life of Job, but we all want the blessings of Job in the end, don't we? But nobody wants to have to go through that stuff that he went through. And so few of us as believers have suffered anything close to what Job did. He lost his health, he lost his wealth, and worst of all, he lost his children in the process But in spite of some missteps along the way, Job never turned away from God. Even his wife told him this sage advice. This is why I don't listen to my wife, Ben. She said, why don't you just curse God and die, right? I'm kidding. I do listen to my wife, right? But Job's wife gave him bad advice. Thank God he didn't listen to that. Uh, His friends gave him bad advice, but he remained faithful to the Lord. At the end of his season of trials and suffering, and they were long and they were hard, God proved himself to be compassionate and merciful, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He redeemed and he restored Job, and he'll do the same for us. That's our hope at the end of suffering, is that God will be a good God who will reward us faithfully. 
All of us on this earth right now are in the midst of suffering. Earth is our temporary home. But while we're here, we may be tempted to miss what the real purpose of life under God is. It's to glorify God. It's to do His will. It's to listen to Him and go after His purposes. While we're here, we may be tempted to trust Jesus as Savior, but then to relax until we get to heaven. That's not what God has called us to do in living. Listen to Paul's words. I want to share with you guys just a couple of verses from Philippians because I think they back this up. Paul, Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things. Do you have this on the screen? Philippians 4, or Philippians 2, 14. It's okay if you don't. That's okay. Listen, just listen. Paul says to do all things. That means everything. Without grumbling or disputing. He says, no complaint, no argue. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. He's basically saying when you do things well and you don't gripe about everything that you're doing, you're proving yourself to God and to others that you don't have fault in the eyes of Christ. That you may mess up and make mistakes, but you're righteous in the eyes of God. He says, you do this in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as bright lights in the world. Guys, when we go through life and we don't join the, the chorus of boos and complaints and gripes and mistreatment and inequity and injustice, and there is that in the world, but we don't just join right in and start harping in and banging a drum like everybody else. God's saying, people are seeing you differently. When you stand up for truth and you speak words that are edifying and building up, he said you're so much unlike the world that you're shining like a bright light in the world. People are drawn to the light even though they love darkness. He said do that in the midst of even a twisted and perverse generation. Jump ahead here. One more verse from Philippians 4. He said there's a secret to joy in hungering. Listen to this, guys. This is the secret to patience and suffering. Secret to joy in suffering. When you long for something else, maybe you want to get out of a situation or a circumstance in life. When you are um, hungry for deliverance, when you're just ready to go to heaven, or when you are longing for relief, here is the secret to enduring suffering. Not just enduring, but to having joy in it. Philippians 4 10 through 13. Okay, awesome, you got it. I know this is a, a, a several, well, maybe it's just one or two on sentences, but check out what Paul says here. This is a secret. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me again. He's talking to the Philippian church and he's saying, I'm so thankful that you guys have started praying for me and remembering me once again. He said, you were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have any opportunity or a chance to help me by showing it. He said, now I feel it. Now I know it. You guys didn't just forget about me. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's not destitute. He still has God, but he is, he is impoverished here. He said, but I have learned in whatever situation I am, regardless of circumstance, to be content. This is, this is the secret to life. Contentment, no matter what. I know how to be brought low. 
how to live humbly and on almost nothing. Uh, these words that are in parentheses are my uh, translation of this, just so you know. Those aren't in, in your Bible. But he says, And I know how to abound, how to live with more than I need. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing, facing plenty and facing hunger, of having abundance and of suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. To put it another way, I have strength for all things in the one strengthening me. That's an ongoing verb that God is continuously strengthening. And you can find the strength that you need in the one who is continuously strengthening you when you need that strength. Paul here is saying that he can be hungry, he can be abased or brought low, he can be humiliated, he could have plenty, and he could go without. You can find contentment in every situation of life if God is your portion, if God is really your God, if God is supreme, if Jesus, if we understand that he's sovereign, that no matter what, he's not lost you out of his hand for a moment, even on your worst days, he's still got you. And he is good in that pursuit. That he's not going to give up on you, never to leave you, never to forsake you, never to abandon you. You are his, and his love for you will always prevail, even when it doesn't feel like it will. Because feelings are notorious liars. A couple more verses out of Philippians. Philippians 1.6. Paul says this beautiful thought. <laughs> You have Philippians 1 6. I'm going to get a device where I can click through these, okay? Philippians 1 6. Paul says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you're going to make it to the end, it will be because God causes you to make it to the end. He will not let his saints go until his purpose is finalized for them. You can be patient in suffering when you know God has a purpose in your suffering and when you, when you know he has a plan for you to make others better through it. At the Leadership Summit, you remember this Jacob? I'm not going to share the whole story about Jacob, okay? I brought this story about six-year-old Jacob. Jacob, you're 16 now, right? And we, we kind of made light of that, that you, you're still this way. But six-year-old Jacob, and this really wasn't about Jacob, uh, it was just a, a name that I pulled out. Six-year-old Jacob was drug to guitar practice. His parents decided it would be a good idea for Jacob to play an instrument, and so they brought a guitar teacher to the house. Every day after school, the guitar teacher would sit in there with Jacob, and Jacob would have to practice his guitar. And he hated it because out the window he could see all of his friends in the neighborhood playing baseball in the field across the road. One day an angel appears in the living room. And the angel takes Jacob and transports him to Carnegie Hall. He sees this guitarist, this virtuoso, who's able to play and make things happen with a guitar that Jacob never thought were possible. He's amazed, right? Up to this point, Jacob's seen no point in practicing the guitar. There's no purpose in it. It has no end result. It's not real to him. The angel transports Jacob back to the living room and says, Jacob, what'd you think about that guy? And Jacob, of course, as a six-year-old, is just like, whoa, brah. You know, people don't know what that is, right? Brah. It was amazing. And the angel says, you know who that is? 
Jacob's like, no clue. He said, that's you in a few years. Do you think that after that encounter that Jacob would practice the guitar differently and think about the guitar differently than he did before? Yes. If he knew what he was going to become and he knew there was a purpose to the struggle right now, he would finish it up so that he could get to where he was going. But the truth is, guys, God has made us all these beautiful masterpieces in this world. And we don't know yet what the end result absolutely looks like, but we know God is getting us there. Shouldn't that make us live differently in the middle of the struggle, in the middle of the daily grind, in the practices, because we know what God's trying to create, an image of Jesus? It should make us different. And so Paul here, this last thing that I want to use this evening, or this morning, it is this evening by now when I finish preaching, uh, Paul says this about the purpose in your suffering. The plan to make you better for it. Philippians 1.12. This is the story really about the Philippian jailer, but it's more than that. In Philippians 1.12, Paul is in prison. You know why? Because he's boldly witnessing for Jesus Christ. And they arrest him for that. I love that in the middle of his imprisonment, and sometimes life seems like a prison, He did not give up on God. He didn't wallow in self-pity. I'm sure that there were moments where he was tempted to do that. Maybe he did, but we don't read about it. But he used his time in shackles to share Jesus. And here's what he says in Philippians 1.12. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is encouraging believers while he is suffering. Now, it's not this fact. Paul wasn't looking back and saying, you know what, now that I've been delivered from that, I can tell you God is good. Paul's telling you God is good while he's in chains. And there's a difference there. Even though Paul's in a bad place, good has come out of it. And isn't that God's purpose, Romans 8.28, Romans 8.29, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes? Even the bad, God wants to bring good out of it for you. Don't you think God knew and even allowed Paul's imprisonment? A sovereign God would do something like that. Here's what happened that you don't see written in those verses. Paul was in prison. While he was imprisoned, the house of Caesar got to hear Paul. He was brought before them because they had heard about this crazy guy who was going all over the place talking about Jesus. And Paul told them that he was in chains because he was sharing the good news of Jesus. Well, what's the good news of Jesus? He witnessed to the house of Caesar while he was in prison. He shared Christ and their hope that they could be forgiven of sin and given new life as well. Can you imagine a scenario where Paul would have ever gotten to do that? To the children, to the cousins, to the court, to Caesar himself where he wasn't in chains? Do you see God's purpose that even though the chains are bad things and prison is a bad thing, God used the bad thing to glorify the name of his son over the most powerful people of the empire in that time. And sometimes we wonder, what are you doing, God? Because we can't see it here. We don't see it from his perspective. But he might just be using your suffering and your trials and your difficulties to do something so far greater with eternal weight and eternal worth than you could ever be aware of. So go with God's plan. God never wastes your suffering. 
Several years ago, I stood at the funeral of my good friend, Craig Strickland, and in his funeral address in that sermon, sermon that we, I and Nick Floyd were preaching and, and talking to others about, and I'm good friends with Craig's family. Every one of his brothers and sisters, I've uh, officiated their weddings. But I remember a line that God truly gave me, that God doesn't waste suffering. It seems like a waste of a 28-year-old life that was on its way up. But I, I remember telling Randy, Craig's dad, man, Randy, I don't believe that God will waste the suffering. I don't know how many people trusted Jesus through the testimony that they heard, but I know one little boy in the Philippines of all places found me through Instagram and sent me a message and said, Pastor Aaron, I just wanted you to know that I heard about Craig and I prayed to receive Jesus. And I'm like, how in the world from northwest Arkansas over the death of a young man does a boy in another country across the sea hear about this and come to salvation? Those are God's plans. Those are God's sovereign purposes. We don't like this, but we love what occurs. Guys, the end result for all of us is that these lives are temporary and short. They're like vapors. James told us that last week. In the short time that you have on earth, enjoy it. Live for God even in the midst of difficulty and struggle and trial because he is working in you a far greater weight of glory that will come out of this. Even to the point that our troubles here in this life will seem so small when we reach glory, the weight of glory that awaits us. And that's what I want to close with is Philippians four sixteen to 18. Listen to this. I hope you have this one. So, this is, again, from before. Some of your translations will say, therefore, where the word so is. Whenever it does that, always go back and read what was before it because it's transitioning. So for our benefit and for God's glory, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. Though our outer selves, our body is wasting away, our inner self, our spirit is being renewed day by day. For these light momentary afflictions, our present troubles, which really are in, in the grand scheme of eternity, small and won't last very long, they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient and temporary and will not last, but the things that are seen, unseen, the spiritual, are eternal. And so we got to live here where stuff's seen, but we don't have to walk by sight alone. We, as children of God, can walk by faith and store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And guys, the only thing that we'll take with us are souls that have been one to Jesus not stuff. And so it's a reminder that in the middle of your suffering, you can still be a witness for Christ. You can still tell people about the overarching glory of Jesus. You can still show people that even though you're struggling and in anguish and in pain, you haven't lost all hope because you have something that lost folks do not have. Opportunities, the spirit living within you, hope in Jesus Christ. It's powerful, the witness you can have, especially when you're suffering. I want you guys to pray with me, please. And I just want to remind you as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed this morning that it's the patient obedience in the midst of suffering that brings this testimony from your life.
And guys, that alone, like Paul in Caesar's house, you don't know what it can do. Your testimony in the midst of difficulty can have more impact. It can last longer and be more powerful than so many of the other simple, easy parts of your life could ever have. Part of that is because in your suffering, God is training you and he's developing you. You may not know you need those muscles yet and God's going to make them appear so that you're ready when the time comes. God's growing you in maturity. He's growing you in wisdom. He's even teaching you joy in struggle. My friends, when we have patience in our suffering, we trust God in new ways. We get to know him more intimately. We seek him more often. And we glorify God when we trust him through our suffering. Lord God, we pray that in the middle of this, we know that in our midst today, that there is great suffering, that there is sorrow, that there is sadness. But we don't just lift up words to the air. We don't just cry out to no one. We don't find material things as our greatest source of comfort and peace. We find the hope in Jesus, the promises of your word the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. And we cling to that, Lord. And we pray, Father, that in the midst of our suffering that you would make us more than we were before. That you would let other people, people we don't even know the names of yet, come to know and trust Jesus as their Savior. Lord, we pray that you prepare us for eternity. We pray that you'd make us better Christians, Lord, more faithful and obedient. And even in the darkness, God, we pray that you would shine as a light that gives us hope. Maybe through our suffering, we arise. We're shot in a trajectory that we could have never been shot on before. And maybe there's somebody else's life that you have in mind that needs our testimony and our witness. And God, we don't think we're going to get through this. It's too painful. It's too powerful for us, Lord. And we're not going to get through it on our own. We need this great cloud of witnesses. We need brothers and sisters around us. We need faithful saints to come alongside and to lift up our arms when we're tired and drooping. We need people to pray for us and to intercede for us, Lord God. We need heaven, Lord God, to be moved. And most of all, we need you to work on our behalf. Because, God, we don't get through our suffering alone. We acknowledge that this morning. We see you as a sovereign God who's in complete control, who created the universes, yet you have your eye on the sparrow. How much more do you love me and each of us? God, let us not lose hope in this dark, difficult world. Let us not lose sight of the fact that you have a greater purpose that will prevail, that there's a greater weight of glory than the present suffering that we're in. Oh God, give us hope. Make us be lights in the dark world. Help us to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus when the world's so full of bad. Help us to be strong in faith, Lord. Help us to not walk just by sight because when we do, we stumble and we get sidetracked and we get overwhelmed. But help us, Lord God, to walk by faith. Somebody's faith this morning needs to be sharpened and encouraged. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would do just that for us. Let us walk out of this place, not with our heads held low, but our heads held high, looking to you, the answer, the hope that we have. 
We praise you, God, for what you're going to do. We know you are going to do it because you are God. We are your children. Bless us. Honor us, Lord God. Use us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.